What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 50 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Guy Claxton. Guy is a theoretical cognitive scientist with a particular interest in the expandability of human intelligence, from the practical to the physical, to the intellectual and the intuitive. He has a PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford, where he has also taught, in addition to the University College London Institute of Education, King's College London and Bristol University. Guy is a prolific author and has written over 30 books, including bestsellers, and his practical programs have influenced teaching and learning right across the world. This includes countries such as Ireland, Poland, Argentina, Australia, and many more. I was particularly keen to have Guy on the podcast to discuss two of his books, The Learning Power Approach and Powering Up Students. Together, these two books aim to arm teachers with the understanding and know-how to support the development of learners that display learning power which includes dispositions such as imagination, determination, organisation, creativity and curiosity. This is a wide-ranging interview that is a wonderful balance of philosophical musings, theoretical exploration and practical advice. And as you'll hear in the podcast, this discussion with Guy has also opened several interesting avenues for future exploration. This episode of the Eat our podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, I'm highlighting their new book, Tom Bennett's Running the Room Companion. I had Tom on the ERRR podcast back in episode 46 to talk about his hugely popular book, Running the Room. And the Running the Room Companion is the follow-up, with a highly practical focus coming out only a few short months later and following his behavior management tome. As Tom writes in this new book, in this compendium guide, I summarize some of the most effective strategies and responses to behavior management challenges by drawing on successful practice I've seen. In the past decade, I must have been to around 300 to 400 schools specifically to look at their behavior systems. I've observed hundreds of classrooms and magpied the best of what I saw without mercy, paying particular attention to when strategies surprised me or ran contrary to my expectations. I've asked teachers and students what they think works best and why and triangulated that with what I've observed. This collection of strategies is what Tom has put into this new Running the Room companion. So if you'd like to check out this new book by Tom Bennett or any other book from John Cat Educational, jump onto their website and use the code ERRR30 to receive 30% off any book from John Cat Educational. And if you're not based in the UK, check out the show notes at ollilovell.com for links to where you can find John Cat books from Australia, the US and elsewhere. Also from John Cat is my recently released book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. John Sweller, the originator of Cognitive Load Theory, has described this book as an indispensable guide to cognitive load theory for teachers. And Dylan William has generously remarked upon the book, I don't often say this, but this is a book that every teacher should read. For 30% off Running the Room Companion, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, or any other John Cat educational book, just use the code ERRR30 at checkout. Now, without further ado, let's jump into ERRR episode 50 with Guy Claxton. 
Guy Claxton, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Ollie. Wonderful, Guy. So the first question we ask people is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Guy, what is it that you do? What's your answer? It would depend who I met and what the situation was. But if I was being formal, I would say I'm a cognitive scientist and educational reformer. Wonderful. Now on the topic of education, what do you think should be the purpose of school-based education? I'm glad you start with that question because it's the question I always start with. And I think everything has to come back to that. I think as an aside, I think it's astonishing that most schools are really incoherent. That's to say the curriculum, the pedagogy, the professional development, the leadership style, ought all like a like well-designed watch mechanism should all lead back to the purpose. But I don't know many schools in which that's the case, unfortunately. So the purpose for me, the kind of the, you know, the starting point is the purpose of education is to prepare kids for life beyond education, not just for the next step of education. And from my point of view, this is where it links with me, the cognitive scientist, the aspect of that, I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge there are, that's a very complicated and broad definition, but the aspect of that which interests me and fires me up most is preparing young people to, to cope well with uncertainty, really, to cope well with uncertainty, complexity, novelty, strangeness of all kinds, which basically means to be a good learner. I came across a little while ago a, a quote that I really liked, which was something about helping young people learn how to be uncertain without becoming insecure. Okay. So to be to feel confident and competent, capable in the face of things that are challenging or difficult. And I adopt a pretty broad definition of what I mean by that. So, you know, it could be just putting your hand in your pocket and discovering that your wallet is missing. Mm-hmm. Or it could be being sacked from your job, or it could be wanting to learn to do the tango, or it could be a whole range of things, whatever they might could be having your first child. So I start from a different place from a lot of people in education who have what I think of now as a very restricted approach to the idea of learning. I have a very broad approach, and that is also a matter of values for me. It's not just a matter of the, the science. So concerned to create a kind of an understanding of learning and, as we'll get on to, learning to learn that is equally applicable to athletes, dancers, musicians, plumbers, hairdressers, carers, cooks, writers, artists, scholars, mental health people with mental health issues, detectives, and so on. Well, there you go. Right? Because we don't know the kinds of difficulties that people are going to meet. So for me, the key question is, are there generic things that we could do to help people get better at dealing with difficulties whenever they occur? Mm. Is there something that's happened in your own life that's made you kind of home in on this idea of dealing with uncertainty? I mean, it's interesting from my perspective because I, I did some professional development a couple of years ago, and one of the things that came out as one of my weaknesses was dealing with ambiguity and uncertainty because I like to have things planned out. You know, I sent the, the plan of this interview to I, you. I picked that up already. Well, there you the, go. The idea that this interview will last exactly two hours and 20 minutes. We'll find out. A minute more or not a minute less, I thought, uh-uh. We'll, well, I have just gone off script already, so uh, there's a bit of uncertainty that I'm okay with. But is there something in your life that's, you know, made this uncertainty really come to the fore and has helped convince you of how important it is for people to be able to deal with that uncertainty? 
It's an interesting question, and my mind immediately goes back to August 1970, when I was finishing my DPhil, which is Oxford University's fancy way of saying PhD. But in August, towards the end of August, within a week, I had my Viva and my DPhil was pretty much rejected. I had major, major revisions to do. And my first young marriage broke up. My wife left me. So this was my, as our queen would say, my anus horribilis. And I was pitchforked into, as a result of this, into counseling, the world of counseling, the world of therapy, and into a firsthand understanding of the importance of emotions and emotional attitudes as well as cognitive factors in learning. And I think that steered both my personal life, things that I was motivated to explore in the ways of different different forms of personal growth, different forms of therapy that I've dipped in and out of and done various trainings in throughout my life, but also my intellectual life and my concern, my passion for education. Okay, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Guy. It's, um, it's always interesting to understand where people are coming from. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that'll do for us. No time. doubt. And, <laughs> and I will mention to listeners that you did an extended interview with James Mannion a few weeks ago um, on his new podcast, Rethinking Education, mm-hmm. and you went a lot into your history there. And that was really valuable, and I, I really enjoyed listening to that. So I would recommend listeners check that one out as well. Okay, so you talked about the purpose of education as preparing students for life beyond education. And, and the thing we're talking about today is very much aligned with that. And that's, that is the learning power approach, the kind of main subject of today's discussion. So yes, Guy, what is the learning power approach? Well, it, it follows from what we were just saying. It's like, for me, the journey to the learning power approach has revolved really around three questions. So trying to articulate in a, in a, in a, much, in a rich way what it is that people do when they're learning. Okay. First question. Second question. It's, a, it's surprisingly under-researched, actually, that question. There's all kinds of stuff about neurotransmitters and dopamine, but what people, whole people in living in the real world actually do when they're learning is something that is surprisingly under-researched. Second question is, are people better or worse at doing these things? In other words, are there individual variations? Are some people better at attending than others? Are some people better at asking, at articulating their confusions than others? Are some people more curious than others? And so on. Question number two, and if there are those differences, are they malleable? Mm -hmm. Is there anything we can do about them? Or are they just genetically predetermined? Is it our destiny to be timid and unadventurous as opposed to curious and exploratory? So the third question is, given that, and the answers to the second question are very rich and interesting and have fascinated me for a long time, but the third question, the practical question is, can and should schools do anything about this? Is there anything that we could do in schools? Most of my work has restricted that question to in schools as we know them with all the current constraints and pressures, are there still things that schools can do in order to help people get ready to be better at all-round learning rather than defensive or bigoted or timid or frightened or whatever, all the things that make people non-learners? Mm. So. What is it that people do when they're learning? And particularly, what is it that people with learning power do when they're learning? 
Okay, so I mean, this is the sort of layman's. I mean, there's a lot of this is a kind of a lot of my work is kind of pilfering a whole lot of bits and pieces from different bits of technical, psychological, cognitive, scientific literatures and mashing them up with all the things that I hear from teachers and parents and so on, and some of my own experiences and my intuitions and coming out with useful frameworks and that the useful is really important. That's why I work in education rather than a, a pure psychology laboratory. So I want my conceptualizations to be rich enough to be informative, but simple enough to be graspable, to be, use, to be useful tools. And we may come back to that later on. So some of the things, you know, to, to put simply, what do people do when they're learning? They attend closely to things. They gather information. They watch potential role models to see how they do it. They experiment with things. They tinker. They ask questions. They ask for help. They seek advice. They hire teachers. They interrogate the known. They ask questions. They check processes and assumptions. They stop and say to myself, is there something I'm missing here? Or is there anything else that might be useful to me? They're good at practicing. The psychology of practicing is really interesting. David Perkins, who, as you know, is one of my gurus, has a chapter in one of his books called Working on the Hard Parts, which is really interesting discussion of what it is to be good at practicing. That also takes us into Anders Ericsson territory about deliberate practice and the 10,000 hours. People are good at imagining, at dreaming up possibilities. It's like if you're a good learner, you're not often stuck for an idea. And those ideas can come from all kinds of places, but the most important place they come from is inside your own head. So what makes someone susceptible to, I wonder if, or perhaps we could, or maybe we could try, or something like that, their minds are fertile rather than easily stumped. They're good at thinking, reasoning, analysis, at description, and explanation. Explanation is a good way of coming up with a good idea about what might work. You know, if you could figure out why things are happening the way they are, then that might give you a clue. And this is very much everyday life stuff. That might give you a clue as to, oh, so perhaps I could try this then if I come up with a workable explanation. And of course, they discuss a lot. One of my mentor friends, actually, James Mannion's PhD supervisor, Neil Mercer, calls, he's recently coined the phrase interthinking, which I really love as a concept. And James is very good on that. Right. So those are all some of the things that people do. If you're building a kind of as rich a, a sense of what the all round learners toolkit is, as I've said before, it's very important to me that that toolkit, that you could dive into that toolkit and offer something useful to a plumber just as much as to a trainee teacher, just as much as someone who's looking after a disabled child or parent. So your second question was, are people better or worse at doing these things? And your third one, which I, I think it's, we, we can pretty clearly establish, yes, some people are better at various elements of this and some people are worse in, in various domains. So the third is, can schools do anything about this? So, I mean, this is actually quite a contentious question, yes. right? Because it brings in this idea of these domain-specific skills or biologically primary skills that a lot of people argue against. So what convinces you that schools can do something about this? Well, lots about, I mean, I've been working practically in this field since the first sort of real practical book I published was in 2002, a book called Building Learning Power. And so we've been kind of field testing 
And plus also, you know, re becoming aware over the last 18 years of all kinds of other people, many of them are kind of alumni of David Perkins and Harvard Graduate School of Education, who've been doing all kinds of research and development work, which convinces me absolutely that it is possible to do these kinds of things. We may come back later to some of the spurious arguments against the idea of generic skills. Perhaps we need to come back to that. I just wanted to add, we skated over question two, but I think that's a really important two. Now, what are the some of the possibilities that remain undeveloped in terms of people's capacity? It's like we're born with a sort of really sophisticated learning operating system built in to our nervous systems, LOS 1.0, right? And then as we grow up, two things happen. We become more sophisticated. We learn new tricks to augment or expand that biological capacity. But we also may acquire some breaks or some blocks on our learning capacity, like a fear of looking stupid mm -hmm. or like impatience or simple things like what some teachers call the 10 second rule. Some kids have in their head, they don't know they have it, but they have a sort of buried, a little bit of malware in their head, which says, when I'm, trying, when I'm faced with something difficult, I'll try for 10 seconds, and if I can't do it in 10 seconds, I'll assume I never can, so I'll give up, right? That's a little bit of malware that gets into some kids' minds and which is useful to be able to talk about, to articulate. So that's a very simple thing. I mean, one of the basic sort of guiding principles of the learning power approach is, for goodness sake, talk to kids about learning. Make these things explicit instead of being sort of sources of private shame, like after 10 seconds, I can't do it. So I'm starting to feel like I'm stupid. Right. Let's talk about that, about where, you know, where that came from. Let's talk how long it took Einstein to formulate the theory of general relativity or how long it took Beethoven to write a symphony. Let's give kids a realistic understanding of what any kind of learning that's worth its salt is like, what it feels like, the process of drafting and redrafting and frustration and confusion that you have to go through to get anywhere interesting. Let's give them an accurate comprehension of what learning is so they don't fall into these pits of thinking, if I'm bright, I get everything right first time, quickly, always, without making mistakes. That's a really pernicious mind worm that is around in an awful lot of schools, that being intelligent means getting things right first time fast. And that's an anti-learning view, because if you can't get it right quickly all the time, then you feel stupid, then you start to have some emotional reactivity. Right. And then you have to be dealing with that rather than focusing on what could I do if I really knuckle down? What could I do to figure this thing out? Right. So a lot of it is simple things like that. It's like uncovering what these little mind worms are, which set people off on different tracks or which make people vulnerable to defensiveness in different zones or different areas of their lives. And school is responsible for installing some of this malware it very often rather than for debugging it and augmenting the natural learning skills that people can have. Mm. If you could think of the number one piece of malware that schools install and the way that they do it, what comes to mind for you? Well, the first one is obviously Carol Dweck, is the idea that intelligence is something fixed about you. And that's one of the main things which underlies the example that I was just talking about. It's like, if I can't do it, it means I'm stupid. So in other words, instead of inviting yourself into a world of possibility or strategy 
or skill or self-help, immediately that shield comes down over your mind, which says, you know, if I can't do it quickly, I lack the ability to. And therefore, effort becomes aversive under those circumstances. How do you see schools installing that bit of malware? Because a lot of schools, obviously, are also kind of charging on this growth mindset path. And I mean, Tom Sherrington has critiqued the way that many schools do that. Yes. And many others have as well. Yes. But what are some of the key ways that you see schools installing that piece of fixed mindset malware? Well, I think this is where we get into the details of the learning power approach, Ollie. Sounds great. Because you need to look at the kind of the culture of the classroom and what the overt and covert messages are. Like, for example, does a teacher, how does a teacher respond to a student's quote unquote wrong answer given in good faith in the classroom? Does the teacher allow that little group of bright, cocky kids in the corner to groan out loud and sneer at a quiet kid who volunteered an incorrect or partial answer? Does that pass unchecked in a classroom? In other words, there are all kinds of things that teachers do or don't do which make the classroom either safe or unsafe to conjecture, to experiment, to struggle, to grapple, to be half-baked, to think aloud, and so on. There's an awful lot of classrooms, for a variety of reasons, are not hospitable to the learning as in the sense that I've just outlined it. There isn't enough time or there isn't enough safety. So, for example, I mean, one of the important things that I talk about is whether kids are in learning mode or performance mode. It's like you have a switch in your mind that you can shift and then that that changes a lot of the settings. It's like, you know, you can choose on the sound bar on your television or on your amplifier. There are some pre-settings, like you can choose the sound for opera or rock music or documentary or drama or something like that. And kids have those settings in their minds and quite unconsciously when they walk into a classroom, unconsciously as a result of previous experiences, they choose a setting. And two of the most important settings are learning mode and performance mode. In learning mode, you're trying to get better. You're living at the edge of your competence and your comprehension, right? So, of course, you make mistakes. Of course, you're going to be half-baked. It's completely natural. It's, it's absolutely part and parcel of the process. And you welcome feedback from other people. It's like, oh, great, that's a really useful idea. That'll help me get better at things, right, when you're in learning mode. When you're in performance mode, your job is to succeed and impress, right? Your job is to look as good as you can. When you're in performance mode, mistakes are anathema. You don't want to make mistakes. It's like I think about Cirque du Soleil, you know, on a wet Thursday morning when there's nobody around in the big top, they're in learning mode. They're dropping each other. They're trying new moves. They're doing all kinds of things. At eight o'clock that night, under the bright lights with 3,000 people watching, they're in performance mode. It's not okay to drop someone. You you don't you play it slightly safe. Do you recall the research? Because you, you referenced some, this was one of the great ideas that was in the Learning Power Approach book that I really, really liked. I thought it was a really powerful kind of construct to think about. And you also referenced some kind of studies and some researchers that have done research. It's not just some idea that you've kind of cooked up. It's really not that there'd be anything wrong with that. You know, it's something that's actually come out of a few studies. Do you remember, just for listeners, the researchers and some of the studies that kind of supported this learning versus performance mode idea? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was stimulated. I mean, it does come back in a way that learning mode and performance mode is a way of reframing growth and fixed mindset. 
And actually, uh, my thinking about learning mode and performance mode was stimulated by an associate of Carol Dweck's, a guy called Eduardo Briseño. I don't know if you've come across him. He has a really good TED talk called How to Get Better at the Things You Care About. And he introduced me to this way of distinction. And it's much preferable to growth mindset and fixed mindset because that's become a bit sort of people have got a bit stuck with it. Like you either have a growth mindset or you don't right? Growth mindset is good and fixed mindset is bad. But the idea of learning mode and performance mode, like learning mode and performance mode are both good, right? We all need performance mode. When you're playing your piano piece in the school concert at the end of the Christmas term, the autumn term, you want to get it right, right? You're in performance mode. And if you know, if you fluff a note, you don't want your mum to shout out from the audience, I think you played a bum note there, Billy, right? It's like, that's not where you're at. Whereas when you're in, when you're in learning mode, that might be welcome. That bit of feedback might be welcome. So it makes better sense. So a lot of the research behind fixed and growth mindset can just be recast a little bit in terms of growth mindset means you're in a situation that has kind of flipped you into performance mode where you're averse to error, where, in other words, where you experience error as costly. And there are two main types of cost. There's social costliness, which I referred to earlier on, like teacher be making a sarcastic remark or other kids laughing at you. Or there's educational costliness. You don't get the grade you wanted or that you need to get to university. So whenever mistakes are perceived as costly, you're more likely to flip kids into performance mode. Mm. Right. And a fixed mindset just means you've got stuck in performance mode and you haven't performance learning mode should be your default. Right. Mm. If you're Rihanna, I was reading about Rihanna the other day, you know, when she's on stage, it's like they, they want to do the best thing they can. Everything is working fine. The dancers, the lighting people, the musicians, da, 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 da. But as soon as she comes off stage, she goes back to her dressing room and she gets out her iPad and she's noting down the little things, the questions that occurred to her, the little things that maybe we could improve this. And the following morning, the whole crew are back together again and they default back to learning mode, Right. So performance mode is where you go when you need to. And learning mode is where you immediately come back to when you don't need to be a performer. Because learning mode is where you learn most. That's where your maximum improvement comes from. So all the research about growth and fixed mindset can be recast as supporting that thing. But it gives you a more fluid idea of growth and fixed mindset rather than these things. A lot of teachers in the England have got developed a bit of a fixed mindset about growth mindset, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love the distinction of learning versus performance. And I think also some of the most magic performances occur when people bring learning mode to that performance absolutely that's an extra sophistication so when you're cristiano ronaldo you can be playful you can be experimental in the middle of the cup final you know mm -hmm. the final of the european cup but you have to work damn hard to get to that place don't yep, you yeah 100 percent. be able to improvise i mean i've done enough talks about learning power that i can also be in learning mode i can improvise or think on my feet or what have you right but you have to become quite a virtuoso in whatever you're doing in order to be able to blend those two modes so that's a really nice insight that's really mm, i love that yeah cool well so you, you outlined earlier some of the kind of the dispositions the elements of learning power and just to recap them for listeners kind of the headline ones and then there's three or four sub ones underneath but i'll, I'll just quickly you've got curiosity having an inquisitive attitude towards life attention locking your mind into learning determination sticking with challenges that matter to you Imagination, creatively exploring possibilities, thinking, working things out with clarity and accuracy. Then you've got socializing, 
reflection and organization. I kind of glanced over these when I was reading the book the first time. Um, and I went, oh, yeah, he's come up with a list. He's come up with a list of stuff that's good. But then I actually went back and I really took a deep look at these. And I, I thought, these are actually, you've obviously put a lot of thought into these and, and yep. presumably many years worth of thought into these. And they cover so much of what I've seen covered in other areas of education and bring it all together in one place. Tell us a little bit about what you hope, and and I would encourage readers, I'll I'll put it in the show notes or something, the actual full list with it all broken down. Oh, great. Yeah, that'd be helpful. First of all, feel free to tell us how you came up with this list and the process of kind of nutting it out, because I think that's really interesting as well. In addition to that, what do you think having a list like this helps us to do? Okay, great. Two good questions. I'm not good at remembering two questions. So let's start with how I came up with it. So it's, as, as I said, it's a mixture of reading and research. So this is, this is not just this territory. There is a kind of, a, you know, an active research and has for actually many years been an active research stream trying to identify this. So if you follow that back, you know, there's very seminal work by Costa and Calic, for example, on something that they call habits of mind, which has reviewed an awful lot of an awful lot of research. So they were that was an influence on me. There's I was gonna look the book out. There's a book by Bernstein and Bernstein called something like Sparks of Genius, which again also follows exactly the same track. So there's a kind of history of trying to formulate lists of these kinds. But you have to remember, as I said a wee while ago, Ollie, that the list that you just read out is kind of, if you just read out the sort of the headlines, as you did of that list, that's a sort of relatively short sum of the main topics. You can make it even shorter. Often when I'm running workshops, I'll start with just maybe four or five you know, things that will be most accessible or most uncontroversial for teachers, like collaboration, resilience and determination, imagination and managing distractions, being able to stay focused, right? So you can start with a subset of those and then gradually unfold the bigger picture. Mm. So when you get to the elements underneath each of those headings, you're becoming more, the anatomy is becoming more precise or more differentiated, if you like. And I'll just reify that a little bit for this, and I'll, I'll pick up on one of them. One that I really love is attention, locking your mind onto learning because attention is such everyone agrees that attention is super important like if you if you look at yeah. dan willingham's model of memory or the one that he's made famous at least attention brings information from the environment into your working memory so it's there if you listen to peps mccray you know students remember what they attend to so it's there it is again yeah but he also break it down further so attention locking your mind onto learning is made up of four things, perhaps more, but you've listed four here. Noticing, sure. being attentive to details and patterns. And so this is one that I've noticed is something that a lot of students don't have. You know, you you might write something on the board and they'll come into the room and yeah. they just, they don't have, my dad used to say, have your antennas up, you know, just yeah, yeah, yeah. notice, exactly. try to notice exactly. stuff. So that's a key gap in learning power that I've noticed. So it made a lot of sense to me that it was there. The next thing is concentrating, maintaining focus despite distractions. Clearly, that's something that our students need to be able to do. In relation to that, you've also got immersing, so becoming engrossed in learning and then contemplating, letting perception unfold. So hopefully just looking at attention in more detail gives listeners a bit of a sense of the level to which these ideas have been unpacked. Yeah, but as I say, that we've gone now to quite a high level of granularity in terms of it's like turning up the focus on a microscope, you know, and that's not always 
you remember I said that my part of my mission is to create frameworks that are useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it may not be useful to go into that level of detail immediately. In fact, you know, I would love to work with a school like there was an all through school, say, you know, three to 18, where the whole of the curriculum for those however many years that is, 15 years, was a kind of progressive unpacking of these things. You had a question, we might come back to this, about the nature of progression. And one of the ways in which this model progresses is through an increasing articulation or increasing specification of what these things are. It's like collaborating, for example. I was in a school a little while ago where the students themselves had worked on unpacking the idea of collaborating so that into about you know 11 or 12 different elements, all of which they were now capable of reflecting on and being self-aware about so that they could become more self-directing learners of developing this aspect of their own learning. So when they were to working together in groups, they could immediately stop and say, for example, this is a, this is a real life example for me. I was in a year four class. They were working in large groups, groups of six or seven kids. And I asked the teacher why, why they were doing that. And he said, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about the importance of being able to work with other people in a variety of different settings and situations. So the class as a whole had agreed that for the rest of the term, they would keep changing the size and the constitution of the groups that they were working in, in order to stretch their collaborating muscles. Mm. That's learning the learning power approach in a nutshell. It's like working with kids to build their understanding and then devising smart ways of working at the limit of your current ability to collaborate or to manage distractions or whatever, so that you're stretching those muscles, you're exercising those muscles so that they can become stronger and more powerful. So, you know, you are zooming in on attention. Kids are not very good at noticing. So there are all kinds of things that teachers can do to build up the habits or like to challenge your ability to notice. There are lots of kids' books in the UK called Where's Wally? Mm -hmm. Do you have those in Australia? Yeah, we do. Yeah, I think it's a, he has a different name in America, but mm -hmm. Where's Wally? So it's like things like that, just things that are sort of fun, but challenging to your ability to be perceptive. Learning to manage distractions. I was in a school in Geelong. I worked with a school in Geelong, Christian College, Geelong. I was in a year five class, and the kids were talking about how they could manage. They were self-assessing every fortnight in terms of how good they'd been at managing distractions over the previous week. They had a display in the classroom and the photos were on a bit of Velcro and they were moving their photos up and down in order to kind of try and give an accurate record of cumulatively of whether they were getting better at being able to stay focused despite distractions. And Dave Kaler, who was the teacher, who's a friend of mine, when I was there, this was just sort of off the top of his head, he said, okay, so you got quite good at doing that. What would it be like if you buddied up with someone else and it was their job to assess how good you'd been at managing distractions? Do you think you could cope with that? And the, they had these nine, 10 year olds had a very interesting discussion about whether that would be too challenging or, you know, what would happen if you felt that your buddy ought to go down a notch because they hadn't been very good. They were having a very mature conversation about, you know, what the, the challenges of doing that, the, the pros and cons, the benefits were. And these are pretty ordinary kids, you know, but they've got to that, Dave Kaler's got them to the point where they have that degree of ability to articulate and be aware of an aspect of their own learning power. Yeah. 
hoping I'm trying to give you some examples of, you know, how this look what this looks and feels like in a classroom, because it's like getting it down to the practicalities is another really important design principle of the learning power approach for me. It's like it's all very well having this highfalutin framework with this, that and the other, but it's got to mean something to busy teachers. Yeah, okay, guy, but what do I do? Right. Mm -hmm. and, And then how do you build up? So this is like a slow build with like these lots of different elements. It gives you a kind of a route map of possibility. So one week, me and my class might be might be zooming in on on persistence and the kinds of things that make us want to give up when we're feeling stupid. So we might be using a little routine like try three before me. Mm -hmm in order to try and build up that resilience a bit. Or we might be working with learning to manage distractions. Or we might be working with being able to collaborate in different kinds of groups. Becky Carlson, who I wrote the Powering Up Children's book with, when she gets a new group of kids, she immediately makes it the normal, like this is the way we do things around here, is you don't always work with the same person and you don't always sit in the same place. Now, some kids, the four-year-olds, get a bit unsettled by that. But after a month, they're now much more robust. They're now much more able to sit down happily with someone who they don't know very well and form a good working partnership, right, than that would have been if they'd been cosseted more, right? So it's just like the analogy with sports training is very useful one for me. This is just like inviting kids into a world where it's interesting to push yourself in terms of your learning skills and your learning habits. Mm. I'm trying to work out where, so, you know, I'm imagining my year 12 students and something that I've noticed. Year 12 is a bit late to start, you know, but yeah, you you can. That's an interesting point and I would love to come back to that as well. Okay. Basically, what I have noticed and what I've discussed with many other teachers is that the students who seem to do well in year 12 and in other years as well, but especially shows up in year 12, which in Australia is a late final year, is the students who are really able to identify what they need to learn, kind of make a sort of plan to how they're going to learn it, monitor whether their plan's working or not, and make adjustments if it isn't. Yep. In, in very simple terms, that's what they need to be able to do. I'm, tr- I'm just looking at the elements of learning power. What's the main one that you think I was touching on there in terms of what I was talking about? About It's, it's sort of a lot to do with organisation, isn't it? Yeah. And being able to, what I call when I'm feeling fancy, kind of create your own learning ecology. That to be able to kind of populate physically and emotionally and mentally, like create an, a conducive environment environment for yourself to do your learning. I mean, that's a very good topical example. I've worked quite a lot with a school in Sydney called St. Luke's Grammar School. It's probably a bit like that you're about to go to. So the school, St. Luke's, she won't, the, the principal won't mind me mentioning it, St. Luke's Grammar in Sydney. And after the first lockdown, like after the first couple of weeks of lockdown, this is a school I've been working with for about five years, right? So they've been, the teachers have really got it about building learning power. And they've been teaching, trying to find whatever ways they can to teach in a way that builds the students' confidence and capacity to manage and organize and plan and troubleshoot and evaluate learning for themselves. That's the slogan. Right. So and they've been doing that pretty successfully. So Jan Robinson, she's retired now, but she was then the school principal, just sent them out like, you know, how's it going after a couple of weeks of their lockdown? And she sent me some of the responses and they were really interesting and really positive and probably a little unusual in terms of, you know, a lot of the responses that someone in a school that hadn't been concerned about building learning power might have got. 
you know, this is from kids aged five up to 12. But they were all talking about, you know, I was a little bit apprehensive, but actually I was quite looking forward to it because it was going to be a new challenge. And my mum and I reorganized my bedroom so I'd have a really good place. And I've learned that I need to have a couple of cookies with me in case I start, in case I get peckish and so on. It's like they were taking pleasure in learning how to create the most conducive learning context for themselves. Now, I think that's pretty cool, don't you? 100%. And I think it's pretty useful. You know, it's like when your kids came back to school after lockdown, was one of the things that you did in your school, I don't mean you personally, I mean teachers generally, was think, heck, what could we do now over the next two or three months so that when the next lockdown comes, they will be much better at organizing and managing and planning their own learning for themselves? What could we do? How would we adjust our routine teaching in a year eight maths class so that we were building these students' confidence and capacity, not learning to be taught, but learning to manage and organize learning for themselves? Mm. So what are some of the kind of you earlier said year 12 is a bit late, late to start, but let's say we're starting year seven or something and say we're wanting to develop, mm-hmm. you know, a teacher is in a, a busy school. They've already got like their curriculum. They've got to teach from a pretty well-established curriculum, but they know that they want to help support their students to identify and build their organization skills, yeah. which you've broken down into learning, designing, planning, and resourcing. Yeah. What are some things that they could do to progressively build the learning power of their students in the area of organization? Well, this is the other framework, Ollie. So the learning power approach, I need to just say quickly, when I use the phrase the learning power approach, I'm speaking as an ambassador on behalf of a large number of research and development initiatives around the world that share a large part of their, of this DNA. Mm-hmm. When I talk about building learning power, I'm talking about my own particular brand or my own particular version of that. You know, I got fed up with being associated exclusively with a brand. That's one of the problems with education is that everybody kind of, you know, trademarks their own little idea and we all become competitors in the educational marketplace. And I think this learning to learn stuff is too important to be owned by anybody. So the phrase, the learning power approach for me includes the EL education schools. It includes the wonderful work that was done at Monash 20 years ago on what they call the Peel Project. Have you heard of the Peel Project? I have through James Mannion. I'm still trying to track down people who are, I think it's kind of faded, but I'm trying to track down I think it has a bit, yeah, but that was very seminal for me. I'm including Ron Richard. I'm including Studio Thinking, another Harvard initiative, and so on and so on. So I just wanted to make that clear. So the learning power approach for me revolves around two frameworks. One is the elements of learning. That's to say, let's be clear about what are the habits of mind which we want to help kids develop. Because if we can't articulate them, we won't know. It's much harder to think about how we're going to get there. And it's much harder to be able to know whether you've been successful or not. Mm -hmm. So it's like without a kind of roadmap of what are the desirables the desirable outcomes of education in terms of the this kind of epi, these epistemic character, which is the way I kind of gloss it often. And the other framework is, so how do we build an environment, an ethos in the classroom, first off, and then in the school as a whole, which is conducive to the cultivation of these now clearly identified habits of mind? 
So those two frameworks go together. They are, if you like, they're the building blocks. They're the trellis work of the learning power approach. So now you've shifted me on to the second framework, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a set of, I mean, all our books, the learning power research, the learning power approach books are all built around that this second framework. So what are the things that teachers have control over, because there's quite a lot they don't have control over, in their classroom, which they may not have realized that they have some leeway or some elbow room to adjust in the classroom, which might contribute to making a difference, might contribute to creating, I think this may be an Australian metaphor, a useful, like a rip or an undertow in the classroom, which is pulling kids in the direction of wanting to become more independent, more responsible, more self-organizing for their learning, rather than in a lot of classrooms, unconsciously, that rip is pulling them in the direction of becoming more passive, more compliant, more dependent, more timid about, more unadventurous, more frightened of making mistakes. So this is, I use this image of the learning river. This is sort of down the bottom of the learning river. There are these attitudes which are being shaped, often unconsciously, either for better or worse, by the way teachers configure their classrooms, the way they design activities, the things they notice or ignore, the the displays they put up on the walls, the way they lay out the furniture. All these little details add up to a kind of strong but often implicit message about what are the kinds of learners we want around here and what does it mean to be successful. So then when you unpack that, you're looking at what do teachers do to, for example, just to talk to kids about this distinction between learning mode and performance mode. Five-year-olds can get that. They can understand it. Like when you're when you're on your best behavior, when you're doing your best to look good, or you know when your auntie Joe comes round for tea and your mummy mummy says, "Oh Polly, would play that." Polly's just been working on this fantastic piano piece. Polly, would you play that? Would you like to play that for your auntie Joe? And Polly kind of sits, let's say, she says, yes, okay. And now she's on her best behavior, right? So she's going voluntarily into performance mode. But there are all these things, and some of I mentioned a little while ago, which teachers might do unwittingly, which create that environment, that this is a performative environment. That's to say an environment in which mistakes are costly. So that's, if you like, one of the base layers of things that teachers can pay attention to. Another is like their use of language. You alluded to the simple use of language, like whether teachers use the word work a lot in the classroom. In British classrooms, they use the word work a lot, right? If you if you imagine like a sort of sped up film of a classroom, you can hear the teacher going, what's your work? Get on with your work. Get back to your work. Get down to your work. Have you finished your work? How's your work coming on, right? It's a very core concept in a lot of classrooms. And it's not a great concept because work is something that you do not for the intrinsic interest of it, but to achieve an outcome, right? You work to get your paycheck. You work to get your grade at your A grade in your essay, right? So unconsciously, you're creating an environment in which kids are invited to see learning as a process of getting it done to a sufficiently good standard as quickly as possible, right, in order to get the payoff. That's very different from getting together in a little group and saying, I don't really understand that. Hey, that's a really neat idea. Ah, oh, I wonder if we could, man, I wonder if we could go deeper with this. I don't think the authors thought about this, right? That's learning. That's exploring. It's experimenting. It's arguing. It's questioning, right? So 
if you want to kind of make a difference, a little experiment, anybody who's watching this, cut out using the word work for the next three weeks and just see, see if it makes a difference. Do a little little action research project in your own classroom. And because you're a creature of habit, you'll find that difficult to start with. So invite the kids to give you feedback. Whenever you inadvertently use the word work, get them to remind you, right? And if you make a game out of it, you can get a swear box and put it on your desk and you put five cents in the swear box. Every time you say work by mistake, you'll quickly change your habit. And then you can see if that creates a difference in the classroom environment. And I've had umpteen teachers who've come back to me and said, you know, I was a bit skeptical when you talked about that, but I tried it. And you know what? It worked. It made a difference. It worked (laughs) to stop saying work. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great, guy. So back to the organization. If we think about and maybe reducing the number of times a teacher says work is is a helpful contributor to this. But if we do think about a teacher teaching year seven who wants to build those skills, support a students, their group of students to build those organizational skills, say across a term, what might yes. a progression and I emphasize the word progression here, what might a progression of activities look like okay. in that context? Right. Very good. Very, very good example. So I'm going to take you back to Dave Kaler at Christian College Geelong. I did a research project for Independent Schools Victoria a while ago, and Christian College was one of the schools that was part of that project. Really good, really good, interesting group of people down there. So he worked with his kids to get them to learn how to take a bit of responsibility for creating their own learning timetable. So he would he started out quite small. He'd say, you know, like in this lesson, I want you to get two things done, but you have to decide which one you're going to do first. Right. Very small little thing. Mm. But he gradually kind of built that up so that when I was in his classroom, this was about three or four years ago. My memory of what was going on was this is like first thing on a Thursday morning. And he gave them like an expanded version of what I've just said. So he gave them a number of learning tasks that they were to do in small groups or with their learning buddy over the next two days. Some English, some math, some history, some, you know, read these pages in your history textbook, do these page of problems in your math thing. And the first task was these kids with their learning buddy, again, about nine year olds, their job was to schedule those two days. And the conversations they were having were fascinating. It's like there were things like, you know, some of these things are going to be more fun than others. So should we do those first so we're not looking forward to them? Or should we save them up for Friday afternoon like as a reward for having kind of done the things that are a bit more sort of drudgery or a bit more painful? So all of that is really useful. You know, in conversation with their buddy, they're building a metacognitive awareness of you know what works for me what works for us in terms of designing and organizing our own learning ecology does that answer your question yeah that's great that's so wonderful and i'm just thinking of picturing my year 12 students and the how some of them had the ability to, to do that to create a learning plan that yeah. interleave their yeah. subject in leading up to the final exam and some just didn't and i just you know kind of fell in a heap like so we we looked at two extremes there we looked at when what was this teacher's name dave kayla we looked at when dave the first activity there was, here's two, two things I want you to do. Which one do you want to do first? Uh, right to the end of scheduling your whole time. Can, do you know what Dave did in between to build students up? Not exactly, but it wouldn't be hard to try and figure it out, would it? To, like, to see what the stepping stones might be. Mm. Let's go into learning get, mode. Let's speculate. Yeah, yeah, that would, that would get you from A to B. So it's like, what could we think of that just generally that were little choices that we could give kids to make? in the classroom they could choose about who to learn with Mm -hmm. they could choose the size of their learning groups 
they could choose where in the classroom they were going to sit, whether they some kids like to lie on the floor, some kids like to lie on the beanbags, some kids, you know, so do we have we populated our classroom with choices about how to physically be when you're in learning mode, some classrooms afford that some don't some afford it, but the teacher hasn't realized it. So, you know, there are things that we could do there. What else could they do? I mean, help me think here. I mean, you're, you know, you're a practicing teacher. What are some of the little things? If we were willing, we could say, that's a little choice. Or I wonder if this group are ready to decide this for themselves yet. Mm-hmm. What about getting them to be their own first marker or to do more peer marking? So before they hand a piece of work in, they are, are able to work with their buddy to revise and improve. A lot of teachers would do that anyway right as a way of functioning so i'm just trying to think there are lots of different ways in which we might go looking for small elements of choice that would enable children to have some originally quite small say in designing their own learning ecology for themselves rather than the teacher just assuming that it's my job to do all that for them Yeah, I guess it's a kind of a backwards design thing. So if I think about what yeah. really successful learners would do, I mean, they'd be choosing the resources yeah. they're using. For example, yeah. They'd be choosing who they ask questions of. They'd be choosing when to ask questions and when to go to a resource. They'd be choosing Perfect. how to record their ideas and when they need to record something and when they don't need to write something down, when they've just got it anyway. Excellent. All these factors. Absolutely. So that's absolutely spot on. That's learning power thinking that you were just just exploring those as possibilities and then going, okay, I'll try this one on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I could feed that in. So the whole design of the learning power approach is the gradual embedding of these small shifts, doable, you know, little tweaks that over the course of a month or so, or maybe a year or so, build up into like reversing this undertow in the classroom. I was thinking back when you were talking a little while ago, an old friend of mine from Cambridge, undergraduate friend of mine, was a secondary school, high school teacher for a long time. And we were having a conversation the other day and he said he confessed to me that he'd always been puzzled why the sort of the end of school exam for our kids in England are called A-levels, right? So he was a really good history teacher. He loved history teacher. He nurtured his kids. He got very good results. And the year when he got the best results, his students got the best A-level results, was a year when he was absent on a secondment for six weeks at a critical part of their year 12 studies. Depressing. And he could never figure that out. And he said, you know, we were chatting on a train. And he said, I think I finally realized it was because, you know, they got a really satisfactory, what we call supply teacher, substitute teacher, who was pretty useless. And they had to do it for themselves. So they organized their own study groups. They, you know, supported each other. They were open about the things they understood or didn't understand. They would, you know, delegate someone to go off and kind of look it up on the internet to see if they could find anything that would help. And they bootstrapped their way to the best A-level results they'd ever had. George was not very happy about this, but but it's a good example of learning power in action, necessity being the mother of invention. Mm. That's great. Now, another thing I was thinking about when we were talking about, first of all, that makes so much sense. It's just backwards designing. And and for listeners of the podcast, there are themes that emerge over time through talking to, you know, this is the, we're halfway to 100, guy. This is episode 50. And there are things that emerge over time. We've just passed the four-year mark as well. And one of those things is the importance of having a curriculum, irrespective of what, what you're doing. So it came out with 
Tom Bennett, you know, teaching behavior is a curriculum if you kind of want to teach behavior in the way that he likes to teach behavior. Yeah. It comes out and, you know, just having a knowledge rich curriculum and the sequentially building ideas. And it's coming out here as well. It's about breaking things down and sequentially, yeah. you know, progressing students towards where, you, where you're keen for them to get to. So yeah. that makes so much sense. And it's wonderful that we can bring together these ideas from areas that are often thought of as polar opposite, especially by some yeah. people on Twitter and things like that, and see the common yeah. threads and these same yeah. similar approaches can be used to achieve different outcomes. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Guy stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, they receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast. And from there, you can listen back from that exact point at the convenient click of a button, or you can read the transcript directly from that point if you so choose. So, if you'd like a memory summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, and if you'd like access to that interactive transcript, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of this show, then go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month, or the average donation of $5 US per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and to help keep the ERRR podcast sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Guy Claxton. Yeah, really good. Can I just put a little comment there? Go on, please. About teaching behavior. I'm not, and just to reinforce what you were saying, you know, you have to start, it's like working with a squad of athletes or young footballers or whatever it might be, you know, you have to start from where they are. And if you find yourself with a class of kids who can't, who don't know how to sit down, who don't have the basics of being polite to each other, who are forgetful, who aren't aware enough to bring the right equipment to the lesson with them, then, you know, I'm all behind teaching a bit of behavior. If you, if you have to install that platform of basic self-discipline and self-regulation, then that's what you have to start with. Where I differ from Tom Bennett, another, there's a famous school in England called Michaela, which is very draconian in its approach. The head teacher, Catherine Burble Singh, and I have been debating about this recently. It's like where I differ is I just see that as the foundation layer, as the launch pad for a whole lot of other interesting bits of mental equipment that we could help kids build. It's just the starter level rather than getting the buggers to sit down and shut up being the kind of be all and the end all so that I then create an environment in which I can be a good old fashioned didactic teacher, right? So, you know, we'll we'll agree about the principle, but I think there's so much more that we could build on that foundation rather than just then reverting to filling the heads with knowledge. Mm. Just then you were speaking about Michaela and kind of talking, you use words like draconian and things like that. But I've also heard about you, heard you speak about Michaela in more of a positive light in terms of the yeah, way yeah, they, they develop culture and things like that. Um, so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to quickly touch on that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, you know, this is all part of the latest book, my new book, which is going to be out in April called The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back are a kind of an attempt to reclaim the multifaceted middle ground of teaching 
where all the interesting stuff happens from this ridiculous polarized debate that's been going on for a hundred years between the traditionals, traditionalists and the progressives. Unfortunately, in the UK at the moment, you know, there's like the pendulum swings backwards and forwards. After the pendulum has been this way for a while, you begin to realize all the things that are missing from this approach. So it begins to swing back again. And you would have thought after 100 years of or more of education that we could be slightly more sophisticated. We'd learn to count beyond two, beyond, beyond these two opposite poles. So in the UK at the moment, there is a very strong lobby who are really have been quite successful about pulling the pendulum back in the more traditional direction around the key ideas of the knowledge-rich curriculum taught through direct instruction, which for a lot of people is good old-fashioned, tell them stuff and test it and make sure that they've got it and they understand it. And my boy, and the, like, the new twist to this is that some people are claiming that they have a mandate, an irrefutable mandate for this traditional model of curriculum and pedagogy, which is provided by cognitive science. And I think this is deeply, deeply wrong and unfounded and based on a model of cognitive science, which was defunct within cognitive science, apart from a few kind of diehards at least 20 years ago. And that all that is interesting in cognitive science around unconscious cognition, the role of intuition, around embodied cognition and embodied learning, it's as if this had never existed in the minds of some of these people who are promoting approaches to teaching or rationales for traditional teaching, like, for example, all the cognitive load theory stuff is built on sand, really, or built on cognitive sand. That's my argument in the book, out on April the 29th. I would love to invite you to go into that a little bit more guy because as listeners of the podcast we know I've, I've just released a book on cognitive load theory oh, okay. called cognitive cognitive load theory and action so i'd love for you to uh take take a bit of time and take us through the sand that you see clt is being built upon okay i don't want to do that in detail at the moment because i'm going to be doing a lot of discussions around that when the book finally comes out it's a bit arousing quite a bit of interest already i mean basically the problem is the idea, this the sort of the fundamentals of cognitive architecture, this interesting metaphor itself implies, you know, architecture is about things that last, that are solid, that are not fluid, that don't accommodate to situations unless you're talking about earthquake proof buildings that have some accommodation built into them. And this sort of, you know, Mickey Mouse model of short term memory and long term memory, which has been kind of disinterred and presented as if it were God's truth about the mind, and which then legitimated this sort of curious idea, which I really don't understand the logic of it. There's a limited channel that you have to squeeze lots of stuff through to get it into memory, and the short-term memory is that kind of bottleneck, and that therefore the way of mitigating the effects of that bottleneck is to have already crammed lots of facts into the bottle. It's like excuse me, how did that happen? You know, I can cram lots of facts into the bottle. I can fill my bottle with all kinds of things, but that need not have any effect on the bottleneck. And it doesn't have any effect on the new things that I'm trying to push through the bottleneck. So that's a very simple metaphorical way of describing a long chapter in the book, which is just basically questioning in terms of what I understand. I'm a cognitive scientist. I've been professor of the learning sciences at two universities in the UK. So I know a bit whereof I speak about this stuff, mm. you know, and I just think the image that is being presented as if it were rock solid 
of the nature of the mind is really questionable and is, uh, you know, like a lot of the stuff about short-term memory, for example, completely ignores the fact that, from my reading of the literature, the most interesting models of short-term memory are now completely biologized. They're all about how different areas of the brain control through inhibition, patterns of inhibition and excitation, other areas of the brain. So you can create transient, the metaphor I like to use is transient stockades around some subset of elements, active elements in your brain. So you can stay on track. So you can keep the activity of your brain corralled whilst you're working on a problem. Mm. That leads, that's an image which leads in very, very different directions from the idea that short-term memory is a box somewhere that things have to go into and then they're processed in that box and then they have to squeeze through this bottlenecks to get into a bigger box right? Those images lead you in very different directions in terms of thinking about what might be useful things to do in the classroom. Mm, okay. Well, this is obviously a, a topic we could talk about for a long time. So we could, I'm, I'm sure we could. I, I, think, I think we will actually have to do that at some point because <laughs> I would love to delve into this. I would love to read the chapter you've written on it and I'd love to delve into this a bit deeper and, and maybe involve some other people in that discussion as well. So sure. we'll earmark that for a, for a future discussion. Okay. I'd love to explore further. Okay, I'll look, I'll look forward to it. Definitely. Coming back to kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of progressively building students' skills towards that you know, organization was the example that we were talking about there. Yeah. One of the, one of the Sorry, key... I have to interrupt you. Go on then. Because I really don't like to use the word skills okay. for these things for a simple reason that Dave Perkins has pointed out on uh -huh. many occasions, which is a skill is something you can do. A disposition is something that you do do. So we're in the business. There's no point in just building. That's why, you know, there was a great fashion for thinking skills a little while ago. The problem was you could train kids up to use these thinking skills. As soon as they walked out of the classroom, they forgot them, mm. right? They went into abeyance. They were, they were potentially useful, but they didn't come to mind at the time when they were really useful, when they were really useful. So the word skill leads you down a sort of training root in your mental thinking. So I prefer the kind of terminology that I've been using, like habits of mind, dispositions, or attitudes. Right? I wrote a paper with, with Art Costa a while ago called Hard Thinking About Soft Skills, right? in which we were questioning both the word soft and the word skills as appropriate. So, you know, you can say skills, but I will come back and say dispositions. All right. Well, uh, I'll put five cents in the swear jar every time I say skills. So there is yeah, there to absolutely. Say. I think, you know, I think the words matter. I really yeah. do oh, think they do. the words matter. They do. And that was another good episode from James Mannion. He interviewed Ian Cunningham recently and was emphasizing not talking about children, or, but actually we're talking about, you know, young people here, not children or kids or students. So, yeah, language definitely matters. Yeah. So in terms of yeah. building those organizational dispositions or dispositions towards organizing yeah. learning in a self-directed way for students, one of the key things that you talked about there and one of the things that was included in that kind of vignette that you talked about from that Geelong Christian College, I think you said it was called, was yeah. getting students to actually then reflect about the decisions that they've made. So you say, you know, do you want to do activity A first or activity B first, but then coming back at the end of the lesson and saying, how do you do that? How do you get them to actually reflect from it, reflect upon the decision they've made and identify whether it was a good decision, a bad decision, whether they could improve for next time, things like that? 
Yeah, that's a good example. Another good example of how we build in progression in reflection, which is a big, a big part of building learning power. So I'll take you back to, you know, one of the very first teachers I worked with, one called Kate Drew in a primary school, who gave all her kids a little book, a little booklet, special little booklet. It was called My Journey into the Unknown. Okay. <laughs> this booklet. And every week they had some time to sit there and just write some reflections. If their writing wasn't very good, they could dictate it to a classroom assistant. But to write some reflections, to help them to start with, they would have some sentence frames or prompts like, what I found tricky this week was, what helped me learn it was, what I'm proud of having mastered this week is, right? So you can start with frameworks. Or you could start with what the EL education schools in the States call anchor charts. Get the kids to create like an aid memoir, like a big poster that they can put up on the classroom wall of useful things to do when you're doing group work, like what makes a group work well, right? What kinds of things we say. We don't say that was crap, mate. We say, I'm not sure if I agree with you, or I wonder if there's a different way of looking at that, right? Mm. So they're like, there are skillful ways of preserving a group's cohesion and giving feedback to other people, which kids won't automatically have, but which we can coach and train. We can run little training workshops in those in building their capacity to do that kind of thing. There's a nice example from the EL education schools of what they call a speed dating workshop, where the kids are just giving feedback. These are 14 or 15 year olds, like working their way with a set of different partners to learn how to give and take feedback on a piece of writing, on a piece of written work, to give feedback in a way that is practical, respectful, accurate. Yeah, those are the three main criteria. And to accept feedback from other people without getting upset, right? So, you know, we can explicitly build those things up. So, you know, so building up reflection. So you could start with writing little things in your my journey into the unknown. Interestingly, Kate Drew gave them a little signal, a little sign that they could put in the corner of their page that they were writing on, which it might have been either a star or a cross, right? If it was a star, it meant it was a message to the teacher to say, I'm interested to know what you think about this. Please give me some feedback. Mm. If they put a cross in the corner, they said, I don't want to hear anything from you. This was for my eyes only. Wow. Now, isn't that great? Yeah. Just to give kids that little bit of freedom and also building their their own sophistication to think, you know, is this what I like? Is this something I'd like a conversation with someone about? Or is this we all write private things, don't we, that we don't want other people to just like jottings or things that we're not particularly proud of or that are uncensored Right. So why not learn that distinction that there's two different functions for writing and you can start that with young kids. So then we can you can fast forward that by making the writing more complex by giving kids examples of reflective writing, good and bad examples and getting them to analyze them in pairs, let's say. Right. So which which of these do you think was better as a piece of reflective writing? What made it better? Now practice taking some of those things from that piece and using them to write a little reflection on your on your last lesson. Right. Just like a little training course until you get to the point. I wish I had it and I could show you it. I was sent a piece of writing by a 14 year old from a school in Sydney, way out in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, a school called Bankstown Girls School. And this was from a girl who was a re relatively recent immigrant, originally Vietnamese, 
a new Australian. And it's a stunningly good piece of reflective writing. She's writing about, in this lesson, I don't think I asked the right questions to forward my own learning. So in the next physics lesson, I think what I need to do is to be clearer and braver about the kinds of questions that I need to ask, right? And she's writing this in English, and she can do that because the, they've been bloody coached, you know? It's like they've had training activities, they've thought about it, they've built up these workshops. So she, is Debbie, is able to write a page of very useful, very insightful writing, which you couldn't expect anybody to do just by giving them a piece of paper and say, reflect. Yeah. And again, you know, you and I could sit here and brainstorm what some of the stepping stones would look like to get from what I'm proud of today is to that piece of writing from Debbie No. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, again, you're referring to lots of approaches to teaching, like having clear models, helping students to dissect those models. This is stuff that Dylan Williams talked about. And, you know, yep. it's just, it's all coming together. It's uh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? I, it, it is. You know, it's very exciting. That's what the new book is about. It's trying to reown this middle ground, mm. you know, which is where all the exciting, the nuanced, the delicate stuff in teaching happens between some, you know, image of completely laissez-faire, sloppy, self-indulgent, sentimental stuff at one end, and this, you know, draconian, Mr. Grad grind, stuff them full of facts, stuff at the other end. It's like, <laughs> please, let's get a little bit smarter about this. One thing I did want to ask you is to what, because it was quite interesting, you, you alluded to it before in a behavioral sense. You said, if you get a group of students who come to school completely unprepared, are shouting out in class, are doing all these things that, yeah. you know, not productive learning dispositions, you are yeah. in support of taking a, a structured approach to helping them to build that foundation and then build, build more complex yeah, yeah. learning dispositions on, on top of that. And this is something I've thought about as I reflect upon my own journey as a teacher. To what, to what extent do you think that that is something that teachers can do themselves like you know when i when i asked tom sherrington what's the most important thing about for new newly qualified teachers to do he said just get on top of the content make sure you know that the stuff that you're trying to teach your students because that's you know really important and linking that into your idea of the the river you know and, and that's the case for me as well i've found that if i'm not secure on the content and i've i've only taught mainly, mainly year 11 and 12 so i don't know if it's different in younger years but my experience is if i'm not really confident with the content I, i'm going to really struggle and this is related to your idea of the river as well the river of learning where on the top you've got those kind of parcels of content and then underneath and you can correct me if i've remembered this incorrectly but you've got maybe we can say skills that kind of enable students yes. to to engage with that content and, and to successfully yeah, learn. Exactly. And then at the bottom, you'd have those kind of dispositions. Yeah. Are we asking a lot of, of early career teachers to say, well, you've got to teach at all three levels of the river, you know, when you're still trying to get your head around, around the content? And yeah. is, is that a bit much? Yes, it could be. It could be. Yeah. I mean, the first thing, I mean, you know, it is true that if you're a young teacher, a new teacher in a school where there is a culture of control, where the kids expect to be controlled and look for loopholes in the teacher's ability to control them, where that's the game and, you know, and that's the culture where there is no sense of students taking pride in being responsible for themselves, right? That never occurred to them, 
right? No, sir, it's your job to keep us quiet, sir, right? That kind of thing. Then, yes, absolutely, then you might struggle. But, but, you know, my advice to a new young teacher is do your homework on any school that you apply for a job for and make sure that, you know, to the best of your ability, don't go to a school where you're not going to be able to teach in the way that you would most like to. Yeah. You know, and I, I resist the idea that Tom Bennett and some others have, have written in this kind of way that, you know, kids are just like that. I don't think so, because I've seen schools in inner city London, primary schools and secondary schools, highly kids from very complex or disadvantaged backgrounds like take Michaela. That, you know, that's one of the great things about Michaela, which is that they're not willing to say kids are just like that. You know, they say character can be shaped and we create a strong disciplined environment which shapes that character. And I'm all in favor of that. You know, it's what parents do or should do is create environments that just build that sense of being able to mesh smoothly with society, which is what self-regulation is, isn't it? Right. It's not necessarily self-destruct, self-suppression. It's just learning the ropes of being a social being. Right. What works better is if I say, I wonder if there's a different way of looking at that, Jill, rather than, Jill, I think your idea stinks, right? So, <laughs> so I'm, absolutely, I think we should be allowing that aspect of teaching. And it will be difficult. You know, the learning power approach, you know, it's like we say again and again in the books, it's like, you know, in the real world that you inhabit, it's down to you to say, you know, to decide for yourself what would be a manageable risk. In, in trying to shift the culture of the classroom, right? And, and why we always re- strongly encourage people to move gradually and why we prize these little golden grains, you know, tiny little things like what I'm proud of this week was or try three before me as starter activities because, you know, the risk, the downside risk is minimal of trying to introduce things like that into the classroom. And then as you gradually build, as you have shifted the undertow from that sort of adversarial issue, the matter to do with control, to an environment within which kids are willing to be challenged, find it interesting to be stretched intellectually. You've got rid of that thing about if I can't do it quickly, I must be thick. And therefore, I have to deploy defensive strategies like irritating the person next to next to me or saying I'm bored or, you know, whatever it might be. A lot of that comes out of kids who don't know what to do when they don't know what to do. When they face something difficult, they don't know how to deal with that. And instead, there's a glimmer of some bad emotional feeling like inadequacy. And then there's a reaction to that, which is to create diversions or muck about or go missing or tell your mum that you've got a tummy ache so you, you can't go to school. Mm. Right. This is only it's you know, this isn't you don't have to be kind of Sigmund Freud to figure this out. Right. So if we could work at if we could go into that discipline problem at the level, one of the ways into that is talking to kids about what to do when you don't know what to do, introducing little things like try three before me or or working with a learning buddy to see if you can sort it out for yourselves. So allowing that little bit of talk, providing it's on task, right? A lot of that sort of peer talk, peer process talk, getting kids together to talk about what's tricky about this, what could we try, is really powerful because, as I've said, I mean, this is part of James Mannion and Neil Mercer's work, 
in that process talk with kids together trying to figure out how to do something difficult, that's where they start generating metacognitive ideas for themselves. Well, what if, or perhaps we could, or maybe we're assuming, or something like that. And then that gets translated to something that you can carry around inside your own head, right? You internalize those conversations, and that's what we call metacognition. Mm-hmm. A lot of people treat metacognition as if it was some kind of woo-woo, hocus-pocus thing, like you can look into the workings of your own mind and, you know, dubious models of consciousness around there. But it's no, it's just internalized, useful talk that you can activate inside your own head. Mm. You've mentioned Neil Mercer a couple of times this episode. I just wanted to flag for listeners, if, if they want to hear a little bit more about Neil Mercer's work, they might like to go back to episode 30, in which I interviewed Neil about interthinking, and we talked about some ways to do that in the classroom. Something for people to check out. Something I want to talk about now is the idea of measurement. So in, you know, in a study by Duckworth and Jaeger called Measurement Matters in 2015, they wrote... Reliable and predictive performance tasks to assess academic aptitude and academic achievement have been available for well over a century. The influence of such measures on contemporary educational policy and practice is hard to overstate. Yeah. And, you know, I think that any, pretty much every teacher in the world can identify the impact that we manage what we measure, as Peter Drucker would say, and the fact that we have really good, really good, quote unquote, good ways to measure academic aptitude and performance drives instruction towards these academic outcomes more so than it does other things. And that could be a big reason why some of these dispositions, as you like to call them, haven't received as much attention as you or I and many other people would like them to be. So I did want to ask you, in the two of your books that I read recently, you alluded to different ways of measuring these dispositions, but you didn't go into heaps of detail about them. So I did want to ask you today, how do we tell if our students are getting better at their learning power? Yeah, great. There's a whole can of worms there. I'm just going to write a note so I try and remember what's in what's in my mind. Okay, right. So yes, you're absolutely right. You know, assessment plays a very powerful role in back designing the curriculum. You know, the curriculum is very largely built around the, I thought up this smart thing the other day, which I thought was rather good, because the curriculum is designed around the markable rather than the remarkable. Oh, that's great. (laughs) That's really good. Right? It's like, you know, that's why maths has such high status. It's because it's the preeminently markable subject. Mm -hmm. What do you you teach? Do you teach maths? Maths and physics, yeah. Okay, great. Very good. So yeah, you know, you know, they're high status because they're, you know, you think you have this illusion of objectivity about kids understanding, you know, you know where you are, you're on, you feel as if like you're on solid ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll come back to that. First of all, I've just written what I was called a rethinking assessment, a crib sheet. I'll send you a copy. Please do. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I sent it to James Mannion. So I'm going to be quoting from that. It's going to be Dylan William is going to be tweeting about it today because he, he thought it was quite useful. Wonderful. So two things are, before you can get off first base in talking about this, first of all, you have to decide what is the purpose of your assessment? Like who and what is it for? Because no one method hits all possible objectives. Is it to improve the quality of teaching in our school? Is it to see whether our school policies are working? Is it to provide parents with reassurance that we're doing something useful to their kids? Is it to respond to the demand for government statistics or is it to provide formative feedback to children on the development of their learning capacities? 
right? Mm -hmm. So uh, until you answer that question, you can't go on to say what's the best way of doing it, right? Because the best way depends upon the audience and the purpose. Lots of people get in a muddle because they don't answer that question to start with. Number two, be very careful about the word that you choose. You used measurement. Some people, I would say, don't immediately use the word measurement because that then preempts any forms of assessment that are qualitative, right? You've already pinned yourself to things that you could put in a spreadsheet. And maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe that's an unnecessary constraint on our thinking about what would be appropriate forms of assessment. So you know, there's a sort of hierarchy of words that starts with measurement, assessing, evaluating, evidencing, tracking, recording, illustrating, and so on, right? And it, like, you have to be careful about which word you choose. My choice for the most, the most neutral word is evidencing, right? Yep. So, how, so for me, the question is, for a particular purpose, what is the best way of evidencing progress in students' capacity? Mm -hmm. So I don't use words like attainment or achievement because they immediately lock you into old-fashioned ways of thinking about content and, and reproducing content. So the way you shape the discourse in terms of the language that you choose is very powerful about this. And we should be very conscious about this. So I write about this in this. If anybody else watching this is interested, this piece called Rethinking Assessment, a crib sheet is, is on my website. So people can go and, and get it from there if they want. So those two critical things. Then I think I've just had this conversation with James. I think we should be very open to the possibility of thinking about a basket, like any form of, I will use the word assessment or evidencing, any form of evidence you choose has pros and cons about it, including numbers, right? Because numbers can often give a very spurious view of objectivity, or they can hide as much as they disclose in terms of students' understanding, right? To get a number, you might just have learned how to turn the handle of your mathematical thing and produce right answers without actually understanding anything, right? So you could get a score 19 out of 20 on the test, and you will know this very well from your own students. And yet when you probe a little bit more sideways about what you've taught them, you might find that their understanding is extremely mechanical and very shallow, right? So the numbers are not a good index of understanding. They may be a good index of mechanical reproduction or of spotting the right formula to use in this particular problem, right? So James and I have been talking about the importance, and this idea has been in my mind for some time, of thinking if we could design a basket of indicators, each one of which mitigates some of the disadvantages of the other. And I think, you know, I don't think there is a magic bullet here. And I think that's probably the way to go in terms of thinking about tracking progress. So let's talk about tracking the progress of learning dispositions, right? So at one end, you might do like what the OECD have done, which is to create incredibly complicated, all singing, all dancing matrices of 12 levels of each of 25 different learning habits. And you can go mad, right? It's like a nightmare. You can imagine, you know, kids coming out, you get their ATAR score, and then they've got a B minus in resilience as well. It's like, <laughs> goodness sake, you know? 
it's like the cure is worse than the disease, isn't it? Yeah. If we end up going down that route of sticking it. But some people want to. Yeah. You know, people, people with a sort of bean counter mentality think that's what should, what we should be doing. You know, your level, level seven curiosity, right? So I would resist going that far. So way down the other end of this is now two ends of the scale. And then, you know, you can create the stepping stones. This is one of my favorite examples. This is a teacher who has a conversation with a, with a young person in their classroom about their resilience. And they have a conversation and the student is talking about different situations, different contexts in which her resilience is, you know, she's been very persistent at doing this, but not so much with that and so on. Then there comes a point where the teacher says this, and this is something very clever. The teacher says, OK, Janella, that's really interesting. Let's just leave that there for the moment. And let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's call where you are in terms of developing your resilience, what you've just described to me. Let's call that four. Could we now have a conversation about what five might look might be? What would five look like to you? So now you have a formative. You've used numbers as a kind of bogus thing, right, as a way of involving Janella in a conversation about what would be an achievable personal best in terms of her resilience, which she could work her way towards and which could now constitute her own learning power target for the next half term. Now, that's a very, very smart way of assessing in the context of formative thinking, helpful formative thinking, but it wouldn't satisfy a bean counter from Canberra. Yep. Right? So that's why we need to be, you know, unless you've cleared the ground with the words and the purposes, you're not going to get a good answer to the question. Mm, that's good. <laughs> I would, uh, how, in your new book, how much do you write about measurement of learning skills? Sorry, sorry, uh, not evidencing learning skills. Learning dispositions. Oh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> How do you, let me let me try that again. In your new book, how much do you talk about evidencing learning dispositions? Not much. Okay. In some of our earlier work, there's a book called The Learning Powered School. We've written more about this, but I haven't actually, it's a job that I need to do. I haven't written much more about it. You referenced in your notes an early paper of mine with, with a New Zealand academic called Margaret Carr. Yep. We wrote two papers back in 2001 in 2002, one in 2004. And I think in the second of those papers, we talk about something that I find quite useful in thinking about the progression, the development of learning dispositions. I think about that development now in terms of three strands, like a rope with three strands. So we can look at three different kinds of progression in, let's say, questioning, you know, being willing to ask questions in a classroom. The first strand is the strength of the disposition, by which I mean, how robust is it? Do you have to be sort of reminded and made comfortable in order to use your disposition? You know, so Rosie only ever asked questions with the teacher that she liked best, mm -hmm. the teacher who made her feel safe. So one dimension of development is becoming more robust, right? Later on, Rosie is now so much of a questioner that it's part of her personality. In fact, it's a pain in the ass to most of her teachers. Yep. She can't stop it, right? So now this has become more of a like a part of her signature way of functioning as a learner, that her head is always full of questions that she's asking. But she only, but that's a progression from when her questioning was quite fragile. 
was quite vulnerable to circumstances and conditions. So that's one dimension of progression, becoming stronger or more robust. The second is becoming broader, because usually there are some domains in which like our profile of questioning or organizing or so being sociable or those things is quite jagged across different domains, right? And most kids are highly resilient in some domains of learning. They may be domains that we don't know about, or they may be domains that we would disapprove of if we did know about. But they probably have high levels of resilience in their footy training, or in being a football hooligan, or a whole lot of things that it might be. So one of the questions is, like, Rosie would only ever ask questions in English, but now she's asking questions in maths and PE and in her guiding troop, and in so on and so on. So there's a broadening. This disposition is becoming disembedded from a particular domain, and is now becoming more domain general, more disembedded from a particular domain. That's very different from claiming that there are things called that there are things called generic skills. This is saying we can work towards greater. Gen- genericity, if that's a word. Genericism? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right? And we can help kids broaden that the range of domains, right, in which they are, you know, sophisticated questioners or adventurous explorers or whatever it might be. And the third strand is the richness or the sophistication or the flexibility, the skilled a- aspect of the disposition. So now Rose's questions are much more forensic, much more subject specific, much more detailed, much more sharp in terms of being able to get her the information and the knowledge that she needs and that she wants. So I think when we're evidencing the progression of learning dispositions, it can be quite useful to think about those three dimensions. Mm, That's great. I think we can have to have a discussion about that one day as well. To, uh, to help you, but we we best keep moving. Does that um, mean you're disagreeing? Or no, no. I just, I just, I just think this is such an important. Like that quote I read before about, and, and it's a constant theme that comes up in the podcast and my thinking and many people's think about education. The way in which you know the assessment tail wags the instructional yes. dog essentially, yes. and I think that nutting out good and valuable ways to communicate the progress that students are making in relation yeah. to these, what some would call non-cognitive, um, what you, you, you're calling dispositions, yeah. is just imperative for us to make sustainable progress in that direction. Yes, but... Go on then. Um, I, like, I once heard Carol Dweck say that she often gets asked about you know, whether it's important to evidence the, the growth mindset in kids. And her stock answer to that has been, I don't know if it's still, this is two or three years ago. Yes, it's very important to do it, but not yet. And I think there's some truth in that. And I think like anybody, a teacher starting a new job, for example, or wanting to embark to put their toe in the water of something like the learning power approach. I think it's much more important to start doing things in your classroom and not to allow yourself to be handicapped from the word go by worrying about the assessment or the measurement or the evidencing issue. Yep. Yes, we need to know the weight of the pig eventually, but that doesn't mean we have to start by thinking about how we're going to weigh the pig. We start by trying to find all the ways we can of fattening the pig. So where we put our concern is important. 
So I think yes, but not yet is sometimes a perfectly legitimate answer, because the most important thing is to start getting the pedagogy shifting. And then, you know, we don't neglect the question, but we come back to the question and say, so how would we show? And it is a really important question. You know, but teachers say they're all, you know, up for kids being more resilient. But you ask them, so how would you evidence that your year fives are staying intelligently engaged with difficult material for longer than they were when they were in year four? And they haven't thought about it. So it's a bracing and important question to be asking ourselves that, but not if that functions as a cognitive blocker to getting off your ass and doing something different in the classroom. Yeah. Totally. I mean, in, okay. in that example, you can imagine teachers going, all right, I'm going to set my students a task and then set a timer and, and see when the first one looks up. And that's, you know, that's that's the resilience. <laughs> yeah. I hope yeah. that's going to dra- you know, drive things in the wrong direction, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that probably wouldn't be a very good thing. But it's like, I think the schools that I've worked with around this have found it very useful to like start doing something. James Mannion had a a way of talking about this when our conversation we had yesterday starting with something cheap and cheerful or quick and dirty and then and then working to improve it in your own situation rather than waiting for you know the answer capital letters to descend from heaven you know john hattie is not going to kind of devise it and then tell you how to do it i think there's a lot to be said for a kind of homespun evolution of our sophistication in responding to the measurement issue yep. rather than, you know, expecting some all singing, all dancing solution to appear from somewhere. Yeah, I think I think that's really valuable. And in relation to this evidencing, I think it isn't, as you said, often focusing on evidencing at the start can kind of act as a cognitive blocker. Yeah. But another valuable question to ask is, you know, what can we do that's going to be generative in terms of the outcomes we're going for that can also potentially be used as evidence? So that could yeah, be, yeah, like absolutely. you said, those learning journals, like learning stories, yeah. things like that, yeah. getting students to reflect upon their learning, and then you've got that written re- record as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so easy these days for students to just uh, like accumulate an e-portfolio. And I've worked in schools where the kids all they like they're all lucky enough. This is schools in a poor area in the northwest of England. But somehow they all the kids in this little primary school have a tablet, have a, like an iPad or an equivalent. And they've all learned how to use Evernote. And they've all got a bit of software adapted which enables them to store just little examples of like personal bests for them, like say resilience in history. So, you know, so you can, you can search it in terms of different subjects and different learning, different learning muscles, right? And they can pull up the evidence and you can, you know, you can show someone. It's like, look, you know, this is me. This is the first time that I, you know, managed to do X or Y on my own, or I didn't think I could do do it, but I really stuck at it. And eventually I did it. And I'm really proud of having done that. Right. Or, you know, little like a little, you know, a little video of your mum with a little testament, you know, to how you were cooking in the kitchen and it wasn't going quite right. But you really managed to get to rescue the mayonnaise and make it nice and smooth. And that was, you know, fantastic. You really <laughs> used your initiative and your resilience yeah. to, to, do around, to get around that one. You know, so, you know, there are all kinds of smart ways in which we might enable kids to build up this basket or this portfolio of forms of evidence around the habit building of your mental dispositions. That's great. Just for fun, I want to tie this to 
I just finished listening to the autobiography of David Goggins. I don't know if you've heard of David Goggins. It rings a faint bell. Remind me. He's this, nothing to do with education. Maybe it is. I guess I'm going to make it related to education. But he's this kind of Navy SEAL US guy who's just an extreme athlete and started from an incredibly abusive childhood and has just achieved these amazing things. Like he ran 100 miles in less than 24 hours with no preparation and he went for a world record for pull-ups and he's done all these amazing things but uh, it's i, I yeah. highly recommend this audiobook it's pretty amazing for anyone who's looking for to build their resilience but the thing i wanted to link it to is he actually has this same approach of building his own resilience and what he calls it is he calls calls it building his cookie jar uh-huh. so every time he does something really hard he kind of makes a mental note of that thing he's achieved and he puts in yeah. what he calls the cookie jar. And then whenever he's in a, in a situation where he's being tested, he'll pull out his mental cookie jar and, and snack on his prior achievements to remind himself of what he's right. able to do. Um, so it's, it's fascinating that even like, you know, yeah. who people consider to be the hardest man on earth also yeah. uses learning stories as a way yeah, to fantastic. build his own resilience. Like, I think it's this wonderful yeah. connection. And that's so your use of the phrase learning stories was in my mind as well, because a lot of this work was done. It has been done in early childhood education mm. around. You're familiar with the work. My, my friend Margaret Carr Margaret in New Zealand Carr, was yeah. one of the original architects of the learning stories work. And I think there's a lot of potential for kind of building that up in progression from early years, you know, up through primary and up into secondary, like building those. And that's what I mean by the portfolio. You can just build up your own repertoire of learning stories. 100%. There's a school in the north of, school in the north of England that has like a sort of, at the end of schooling, kids present their portfolio to some esteemed member of the community. It's a bit like your PhD Viva examiner, right? And they have quite a detail. They go through it and explain to me about this and that and that. And at the end of it, that you know, their resilience and their imaginativeness and their resourcefulness are kind of celebrated and certificated by this person, you know, they actually get a certificate. And, you you know, you wouldn't believe how seriously the kids take that because it's built up to this, you know, there's someone, a real world person, and you might have some choice in saying, you know, like this is the youth coach from your local second division football club in your town or whatever it might be, or, you know, someone who you might admire, who you might say, you know, yeah, I'd love them to be my examiner, my portfolio interrogator, right? And you get this letter or this certificate from them And you say, wow, you know, you can imagine the rush of pride that comes from that. Whereas, you know, other attempts to create portfolios just on their own often sort of fizzle out because they're just another bit of another bit of something that kids have got to do. Yeah. So we have to be smart about it. 100%. One of the things you mentioned earlier and something that I wanted to come back to was you mentioned when I referred to helping year 12s develop their organization for learning dispositions, you said, well, maybe that's a bit too late. Yeah. Tell us, tell us more about that. Well, obviously, the best place to start is early, as young as possible, so that these, you know, and a lot of the work in the early days of when I was working with the Building Learning Power team, like the primary schools were the the open door, were pushing at the open door. They were much more receptive to this because it's more in primary schools, the, the ethos is more conducive it's like it's a it's a softer sell into primary school you know like you know the old caricature is primary school teachers teach children secondary school teachers teach subjects 
right? So there are ways in which when kids get up into secondary, the predominance of the silos, the pressure of the content, and the looming importance of the high stakes tests makes it harder. You know, these are real world pressures and constraints for teachers for a number of reasons to broaden their attention to what's going on in the classroom from have they understood the Avogadro's number to how's their resilience coming on? Or are they learning to be more independent? Are they learning to be more willing to ask when they don't understand? You know, it's a big problem. As kids go, go up through the school system, very often they become more mute, right? Yeah. You know, and often there is a culture of this performative culture of fear in the classroom, which says, I'm not going to put my hand up and say, I'm sorry, sir, I don't understand because I'm afraid that everybody else does and they'll all laugh at me. And that's a very strong dynamic in many classrooms and many teachers don't know it they haven't realized that that dynamic is there and they haven't realized that they could shape change it that they could shift it you know i've got a friend who teaches high school chemistry and he had that dynamic like a class an a-level class of elective mutes he could never find out what they didn't know or what the you know what their misconceptions were because they never bloody said anything mm -hmm. right there's this sort of collective vow of silence in the classroom so then he just started designing explicit tasks for them. Like, you have to work in your group. You're preparing for a test on inorganic chemistry. You have in 15 minutes to put up on the whiteboard at the front of the class a piece of paper from your group of three or four students that identify three or more areas of, of misunderstanding of, or difficulty in your understanding of this topic. Mm. Right now, the fact that it's a group task takes off the individual pressure of anticipated shame. And the fact that it's an explicit task means you have to do it in order to be a good student. You have to do it within three weeks. He'd shifted the culture of that classroom so that the students were now much more ready to say, I'm sorry, sir, I don't get it. Could you go over it again? Right. So it's not impossible. I give you that example to say, even at year 12, it's not impossible to have an impact. But the earlier we can start, the better, really. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it gets to the point where I think if you start early enough, students will be those outgoing kind of confident yeah. learners, irrespective of the teacher they have. Absolutely right. Whereas if, if you don't start early enough, it will depend upon the teacher they have as to the way they act in, as a learner in that yes. classroom. Yeah. Although there are occasional tragedies where students from primary schools who by year six have become incredibly confident and sophisticated managers and organizers of their own learning arrive in year seven in their secondary schools to be completely squashed and underestimated by their teachers who have no idea of their levels of competence at self-organizing and self-managing and don't want to know yeah because that would disrupt their pedagogy that is a tragedy yeah yeah i mean on that topic my next question was when teachers and schools uh get excited about you know learning power and all these kind of things what are some of the mis the main mistakes that they make when they set out on this journey well you know, it's like we're back to Tom Tom Sherrington and the cheesy growth mindset posters, aren't we? You know, thinking that you can just talk about it or do it through exhortation. You know, like people get fixated on the posters often, you know, and they have lots of, you know, the 
in building learning power, we used to talk about the four R's, resilience, resourcefulness, reciprocity, and reflection. And that, you know, we'd go around to schools, and they'd say, yeah, we're doing building learning power. And they just got all they got on the wall was posters. It's exactly the same thing as the growth mindset stuff. And they don't have any effect. You know, these things become invisible almost as soon as you've put them up. Or it's or worse if they're just used as a way, as a way of blaming kids for not having done very well. Well, you've, you've obviously got a fixed mindset or your resilience isn't very good, is it? Right. So that it, the teachers can fall back into like misunderstanding the developmental point of this. So one of the biggest things with learning power is that you have to see be looking at the leading edge of what kids are capable of doing for themselves rather than saying, yes, we do group work. Yes, our kids collaborate. Collaborating is a good example, right? Lots of teachers say, yes, our kids do group work, but they've never been taught how to do group work. And their group work is basically inefficient because there's a whole lot of social loafing. Some kids go quiet and don't bother to participate. And other kids are bossy and noisy and noisy and kind of control the group. So there is no sense of coaching of, of a, like a developmental trajectory. And some teachers have missed that. So this is not about only naming the learning dispositions and noticing them when they're there. This is about designing the culture and constructing activities that stretch these dispositions so that their ability to collaborate is becoming more sophisticated. They're learning more ways of rescuing themselves from difficulty. Mm. You know, so when you get into the higher levels of resilience, for example, you can start talking to kids about the way in which elite athletes deal with with their own emotional resilience or learn to regulate their own levels of arousal when they're un under competition conditions. Right. They talk about they call it mental toughness. And they have lots of strategies like Andy Murray has this little piece of paper that he gets out of his bag when he's sitting down between sets, when he was a force in the tennis world, right? With just little reminders, you know, little kind of nobody ever saw what was on it, but it was just, you know, little things that helped him reset his mental equilibrium mm. when he went out to play the next game. Now, all of that is gold dust for kids. Like, you know, why wait until you're in the first squad of the, you know, the Aussie cricket team or something to discover this stuff? We could start introducing that, you know, in year nine, year 10. And I, kids would be really interested in it. You know, they get interested in stuff that enables them to control their minds better. Yeah. Enable to be more effective. So uh, have I drifted off your original question? I think I have a bit, but never mind. Yeah, I asked about mistakes that uh, schools uh, often make. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the mistakes is not taking seriously enough the fact that this is the teacher's job is to become this like this coach like you're you're constantly working at the leading edge like my friend dave kaler it's like he said every lesson he goes into with a bubble in his head that says i wonder if this group are ready to do this for themselves yet right so you're always learning to walk on the slightly optimistic edge of what kids might be able to do for themselves not ridiculously optimistic, right? But just slightly optimistic, like give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Mm. I've worked a lot with, with uh, football teams, Premier League junior football teams, like the youth development coaches. And you'll see it'd be amazing to see kids from, you know, often from very poor or undisciplined or backgrounds, maybe, you know, learning to collaborate well, learning to talk about collaboration, learning to lead coaching sessions, you know, to do the post-match review, 
and to lead themselves because their coach has been like they've coached coaching. The kids, they've taken them behind the scenes of what it is to be a coach and taught the kids how to learn some of those skills of coaching, which they can apply to themselves and to each other. So that's all we're talking about. So the subtitle, you remember, you know, which you used at the beginning of the Learning Power Approach, teaching learners to teach themselves, right? And all the different aspects and threads of that. And it's like making what we know transparent to them so that we can pass that expertise on to them so that they can become more autonomous and more independent. That's great. And that's a mistake. You know, that was, we had to work quite hard to remedy that one. Yeah. Okay. And also another mistake is getting obsessed with the with the words and forgetting the spirit. So people sometimes people latch on to like fancy phrases like growth mindset or resilience. And the kids get sick to the back teeth with their teachers going on about resilience. There are umpteen words in the English language and probably many more in Spanish for for talking about resilience, like, you know, determination or perseverance or stickability or fortitude or tenacity or what have you. So keep language fresh. Don't let it go stale. Don't, don't let it become like a fetish in the classroom. You have to be working with the spirit of what we mean when we talk about resilience rather than just, you know, using the label. That's where the cheesy posters go wrong, isn't it? Mm, yes. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth light, I believe is the, it, the quote is, from it, the it, Bible. Oh, yeah. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Yeah, good. Very good. Well, let's let's jump into some <laughs> some closing questions, if that works for you guys. We yeah, could sure. we could talk for hours, and we'll have to we will have to have. A I told you, I told you this was a five hour agenda, didn't I? You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to your first year educator self? First year, by, sorry, by first year educator, do you mean if I if I was a new teacher? Yeah, let, you, you mean can, you, that's that's a good way to interpret it. Yeah, you can choose it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm back, harking back to our earlier conversation, I would say choose your class carefully and make haste slowly, but don't lose faith in the importance and the practicability of the learning power approach. But don't go mad, you know, be judicious. Who is it? I think they say in Islam, trust in God, but first tether your camel, right? So you may have to sort of tether your camel first with some kids you know don't bounce in all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with the most difficult the most objectionable class if such a thing exists and try your fanciest learning power trick on them because they will eat you for lunch and you will have a dispiriting experience and you might then react by saying this progressive nonsense doesn't work i'm going to become an old-fashioned teacher because that's the only thing that works Mm -hmm. I think that's happened to some of the people who have become vocal neo-traditionalists. You know, I think they are disappointed idealists. I think they tried to be progressive and it didn't work. And so they've concluded that it doesn't work. And there's only one effective way of being a teacher. And I think that's a great shame. I mm. think that's a real pity. Mm. What are three or more books that you think every educator should read? Oh, obviously the learning power approach. Okay. Uh, <laughs> David Perkins' Making Learning Whole, whole with a W, mm -hmm. has been really significant. And I think my other 
sort of guardian angel in this at the moment is Ron Berger, who was also an associate of Dave Perkins at Harvard and the Project Zero at Harvard and is now chief education officer of the EL Education Schools. Do you know about them? Expeditionary learning? Yeah, expeditionary learning. Yeah, exactly. They're now called EL Education. And their most recent book is a book called Learning That Lasts. And it's like the learning power approach. It's really practical, nitty gritty, down to earth stuff. And it comes with a DVD with 31 little videos on it of how this stuff actually looks and feels and works in the classroom. Mm. It's an absolutely, it's a goldmine of real life stuff with kids in inner city disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, of how you can make it work in under any circumstances. Another mistake that people sometimes make, they say, is it's all very well for you or it's all very well in some kind of leafy suburb, you know, but you come to my school, matey, and you wouldn't even begin to think about these fancy ideas, to which I would say, first, you know, lay the foundations. You have to get the concrete foundations in place, and then you will be amazed at how the kids will fly. Mm. First, get the roots firmly embedded, the roots of self-discipline and self-regulation, and then you can turn your attention to the wings of creativity and curiosity. Mm. Great. That's a great metaphor. Thank you. What are you, what are you currently... Oh, wait a minute. Oh, God. Yeah, that was three books, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I was just... But you can't say your own one, guy, so you've got oh, one more. Okay. Now, when you were talking to James Mannion, you said you think the best educator in the world at the moment is, at the moment is Ron Richard, and you didn't mention any no, of his books. No, Ron Berger. Didn't I say Ron Berger? I'm pretty sure you said Richard, but, but I... Right. Okay, I, well, either of them. Yeah, so, so yeah, Ron Richard's books are great. He's got a newish one out, which I'm not sure I have yet, but another book that's very much in the same sphere is called Cultures of Thinking, which is very good, very lovely, and I thought I'd seen another one as well. Yeah, well, and of course, you know, I'll give an honorary mention to, uh, you know, James Mannion and Kate McAllister's book, Fear is the Mind Killer. I have some qualms about the title, but the content of the book is fantastic in terms of a really detailed worked example of how this stuff plays out, again, in a not very auspicious set of circumstances in a school with, you know, some problems and, you know, a number of kids who didn't want to be there uh, and what a difference it can make even to their results. And, I, you know, I want to end on this note. Everything I'm saying, it comes from a position of both and, not either or. This is about helping kids best get the best results they can, too. Kids who are more resilient, more resourceful, more inquisitive, more willing to have a go, more ready to ask when they don't understand, do better on the bloody tests. And they're prepared better for life, right? So this is, we mustn't fall, none of your listeners mustn't fall into the trap of thinking this is more progressive flim-flam, right? This interesting middle ground that takes some of the best of progressive and some of the best of traditional and blends them into a curriculum that is genuinely fit for purpose for all kids in the 21st century. Not just the half of kids who are going to go to university, but all of them need to come out of school thinking that was it 12 years well spent. Um, the learning power approach and things like it are the way to do that. Wonderful. And if people want to hear more about James and Kate's book, Fear is the Mind Killer, they can jump back to episode 43 of the podcast uh, where I spoke to them for three or three and a half hours or some something mammoth like that, all about their <laughs> fantastic work as well. 
any final calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go to away today and do? Oh, just do, just, you know, do something, do something different tomorrow. If, you know, tomorrow, well, tomorrow's the weekend, but on Monday or the next time you see your kids, start talking to them about learning, start revealing, dare to reveal a little bit more about yourself as a learner, things that you've struggled with, make struggle interesting and start using words, like use a a rich vocabulary for talking about difficulty. So shift from a discourse which is about success and failure to a discourse which is about grappling, doing things that are tricky, struggling to understand things, and make it absolutely normal in your classroom, whatever your subject or whatever your age, that everybody always struggles, makes mistakes, has to redo things, has to ask for help on their way to coming out with something that they're genuinely proud of. There's no other way to sup the nectar of the pride of achievement than to have wrestled your way through something that you weren't sure that you could do and have come out at the other side with something that is better than you ever imagined you could produce. A big part of our job is to teach in a way that gives all kids a taste of that nectar because it is transformative. Guy Claxton, thank you so much for your time today. An hour and a half, we've had two hours and a half, should I say, we've had together. It's been a fantastic conversation. We have covered so much and yet we've only scratched the surface of many of these topics. But but something that I have loved about this conversation is how we've explored a field that many people would think is softer or less structured or more progressive than, than they may like. But yet it's been fascinating to see so many so many ideas from other realms be brought in into the fold. And like you say, I, I, you might have used the phrase of kind of finding a middle ground or finding that mm. third point and moving beyond binaries. And this is something that's been happening more and more in the podcast as we move along. And it's something that I love to see. And, and to be doing it in the space of what James and Kate would call learning skills, what you would call learning dispositions, um, is really exciting because I think this is really about, as you say, unlocking that learning power and helping students to be, to be ready for life. So thanks for your time today. And I'm looking forward to our next chat where we dissect some of, <laughs> some of those contentious issues in more detail. Okay, very good. It's been a pleasure. And I think I'd just like to say, like you, I feel most days of the week, I feel really optimistic. I think this is an exciting and transformative time to be an educator. I think we are possibly in the middle of a paradigm shift and that we are on the scent of something that we would have the right to call a 21st century education. Thank you, Guy Claxton. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EEEE podcast with Guy Claxton. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off all books from John Cat. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the EEEE podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other EEEE episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.